0: Necromancy, sorcery, pacts with the devil. Necromancy, necromancy, or nesiomancy, as it was originally termed, was that branch of the magical arts which professed to reveal future events by means of communication with the dead. Although it belonged to the class called evil or black magic its practice was apparently tolerated if good angels and not devils were invoked for the purpose in ancient times it was understood to mean a descent into hades to consult the dead concerning the living there are many references to this practice in the mythological stories of the greeks and it is mentioned by homer and virgil Lucian relates the legend of the hero Menippus, who had recourse to Amagus, who was a disciple and successor of Zoroaster, having heard that he possessed spells and incantations by which the portals of Hades could be unlocked. He was also said to be able to invoke and afterwards dismiss the spirit of any dead person whom he pleased to summon, and by his aid, therefore, the opinion of the Serias might be obtained. With its object, Menippus undertook an expedition to Babylon and lodged under the roof of this Chaldean, a man of notable wisdom and profound skill, a diviner, venerable for his hoary larks of flowing beard. His name was mithra avouched his necromancy pretensions, and after much solicitation and promises of lavish reward, Menippus is said to have obtained his object. In the Talmud, magic is divided into three classes. The first includes all evil enchantments, magical cures, the citation of evil spirits, and the calling forth of the dead through the aid of demons, for all of which, like idolatry, the punishment was death. The second includes those magical practices which are carried on by aid of evil spirits and the third includes astrology and all intercourse with the lower spirits. In attempting to define the meaning of the names applied to the various branches of magic, it is interesting first to consider the explanations given by writers who lived in the Middle Ages. In the 13th century, necromancers were called jugulars, from which we may assume they were often regarded with suspicion and the practice of necromancy was forbidden by the church. According to an account written in the 15th century manuscript, the papal conclave came to the following conclusion. The help which the Lord hath given his people, is now through magic and negromancy turned into a damnation of all people. For even the magicians themselves being intoxicated and blinded by the devil and contrary to the order of Christ's church, transgress the commandment of God which doth say, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, but him only shalt thou serve. Magromancers denying the sacrifice due unto God, and in tempting him hath done sacrifice unto devils, and abused his name, in calling on them contrary to the profession made at their baptism. Hath also brought all people through these marvellous illusions, and drawing the ignorant into damnation of soul and body. Pluck up and utterly destroy this deadly root and all the followers of this art. Another writer of the same period states, Necromancy was used in old times by faithful and unfaithful. It constrains the devils and makes them perform, obey and accomplish their commands. It may be exercised in two ways. First, the natural, which may be wrought through things, whose virtue and property is natural to them, as herbs, plants and stones, the planets and heavenly influences. This art is lawful the other kind of necromancy is that which is practiced through the help and favor of the devil, which hath been long exercised in the world. Of this the Holy Scriptures testify, speaking of the magicians of Pharaoh who contended with Moses and Aaron, and in the New Testament making mention of Simon Magus, rebuked by St. Peter. The devils may be forced and constrained by the good angels, and this is because of the grace which the one lost and the other yet retains. None can use or exercise the art of necromancy unless he first make an agreement or express covenant with the devil. Some devils are preferred as principles to command the rest and the inferior devils are subject unto these, which are of mighty force to execute that wickedness. Wicked demons are divided into nine degrees or orders, as the good angels are divided into nine orders or hierarchies. The first are called pseudotei or false gods. Who would be worshipped as gods, as the demon who said to Christ, If thou wilt fall down and worship me, the prince of these is Beelzebub. Second are the Menderiorum, or spirits of the lying. Their prince is that spirit, Python. This kind of spirit deceive by their oracles, divinations, and predictions. The third are iniquitates or the vessels of anger and are the inventors of all wicked arts the prince of them is Belial the fourth are the revengers of wickedness and their prince Asmodeus the fifth are the prestigiators who imitate miracles and serve the magic and malefics and seduce people in their miracles their prince is Satan. Six are the aerial powers who mix themselves with thunders and lightnings, corrupting the air, bringing pestilence and other evils. Their prince is Merism, a south demon raging and furious, whom Paul calls in the Ephesians a prince of the power of the air. The seventh are the Furies, the sowers of mischief and discords, wars and destruction. Their prince is called apollion in Hebrew Abaddon who destroys and lays waste. The eighth are the Criminators, whose prince is Ashtaroth. He is the Calumniator. are the tempters, an all bad genie. Their prince is Mammon, interpreted covetousness. There are many traditions concerning the covenants and pacts made with the devil in exchange for certain powers, renewed youth, and other desired attainments, many of which are no doubt fabulous. But there are some transcripts to be found in manuscripts, purporting to be copies of these curious documents. Pacts with the devil were said to be always signed by the executor with his blood as being most sacred seal. In a pact recorded in the 17th century, the signatory agrees to deny God being the creator of all things. To blaspheme the three saints and the holy trinity to trample underfoot all the mysteries of the redemption and to spit on the face of the virgin and all the saints abhor the name of christ and renounce christianity baptism and the commendations of the church and the sacraments to sacrifice to the devil make a pact for the adoration of him pray him homage and fidelity Dedicate innocent children to him and recognize him as creator. Another pact reads Je renonce à tout le bien, tant spirituel que corporel, que m'est pour rien etre, confere de la part de Dieu, de la Vierge Marie, et de tous les saints du paradis, parelement de mon patron Saint Jean Baptiste, Saint Pierre, Saint Paul et Saint François et de me donner de corps, et d'aimer à Lucifer, ici présente, avec tous les biens que je ferai à jamais, excepté la valeur du sacrement pour le regard de ceux qui le recevront, et ainsi le signe In the library at Uppsala, there is preserved a written pact made by Daniel Sultanese who sold himself to the devil. The methods, rites and ritual employed by necromancers are fully described in the books of ceremonial which will be dealt with later. A sorcerer was said to be one who practiced the arts of magic and witchcraft and who had acquired a supernatural knowledge by use of enchantments which gave him command over evil spirits. The sorcerer made no pact with the evil one, which distinguished him from the necromancer. The object of the sorcerer was therefore to constrain some evil spirits to appear so that he might question him, the evocations being carried on with mysterious rites and ceremonies. In order to carry this out he had first to fix a place proper for such a purpose, which might either be a cave or a vault draped with black hangings and lighted by a magical torch, or it might be among the ruins of an ancient castle or abbey, a churchyard, or other solemn place, between the hours of twelve and one in the morning, either when the moon shone brightly or when the elements were disturbed with storms, thunder, lightning, wind and rain. When a proper time and place was selected, a magic circle was to be drawn within which the sorcerer and his associate were to stand. A piece of ground was chosen nine feet square, at the full extent of which parallel lines were drawn, one within the other, containing crosses and triangles, close to which was formed the first or outer circle. About six inches within this, a second circle was described, having within it another square corresponding to the first, the centre of which was the seat or spot where the master and his associate were to stand. The ground having thus been prepared and the circle completed, the sorcerer was not, at the peril of his life, to depart until he had completely dismissed the spirit. Great importance was attached to the discharging of the spirit after the ceremony was finished, and after he had answered all the demands made upon him. The magician must wait patiently "Until he has passed through all the terrible forms which announced his coming, and only when the last shriek had died away, and every trace of fire and brimstone had disappeared, may he leave the circle and depart home in safety," says a writer of the sixteenth century. A picturesque account of a visit to the house of a sorcerer in Paris in the seventeenth century is thus recorded by an old French writer. On the ceiling and in the corners were diverse unclean animals, which seemed to be still alive, here the serpent crawling and writhing, there the bat with its membranous wings, there the toad with eyes of brilliant, its sinister beauty, and there the skeleton of some oddly formed fish. The room still further contained the furnace, the alembics and all the preparations and the instruments of the sorcerer. On the right, on the left, in every direction lay strangely formed or grotesque files, and vases and books, closed or half-open, portraits in wax and some symbolical images. And amidst the strange collection stood a brazier from whence arose a bluish flame, which revealed the figure of the sorcerer. Loose and trailing black robe enveloped his tall figure, In his left hand, he held a book, and in his right hand, a divining wand. The constellations, the sun and the moon, shone upon his broad chest. On his head he wore a sort of turban, and his shoes were long and narrowed off to a slight curving point. His countenance was not destitute of a certain grave dignity. His gaze was fixed and contemplative, and a thick beard descended to his chest. Making an imperative gesture, he waved me back, and then the flame in the brazier redoubled its intensity. A thick smoke arose in cloudy walls and speedily filled the whole room. For a moment, the magician seemed to be invoking a familiar demon, and then suddenly in the centre of the brazier arose a phantasmagoric apparition. There was hardly a more terrible accusation one person could bring against another during the middle ages and that of charging him with practicing sorcery in 1324 robert marshall of leicester and john nottingham were indicted for conspiring to kill the king the two dispensers the prior and two other officials of coventry by magic arts Marshall, who turned King's evidence, said that certain citizens came to John Nottingham as a man skilled in nigromancy, and bargained with him for the death of the persons named, paying a certain sum down and giving him seven pounds of wax. With the wax, Nottingham and Marshall made seven images, six being of the proposed victims and the other of Richard de who was selected for experimental purposes. The work was carried out with the closest secret in an old deserted house not far from Coventry. And when the images were ready, the sorcerer bade Marshall thrust a leaden bodkin into the head of the figure that represented Richard Dessau, and the next day sent him to the house of said Richard, whom he found raving mad. Master John then removed the bodkin from the head of the image and thrust it into the heart, and within three days Richard died. Nottingham died in prison before the case was finished, and Robert Marshall, in the end, came to the scaffold. Witchcraft Demonology, Chapter 11 The belief in witchcraft, as known in medieval times, was probably derived from the wild mythology of northern races, The Hebrew word makisipah literally means one who makes spells, amulets, poisons and incantations and corresponds to the Latin venefica. It is probable, therefore, that the name which mentioned in the Bible has a different meaning to that applied to it in later times. As Scott points out, there is not a word in Scripture of a contract of subjection to a diabolical power, no infernal stamp or sign of such a fatal league, no revelings of Satan and his hags, and no infliction of disease or misfortune upon good men. On the other hand, during the Christian era and through the Middle Ages, the name came to be applied to one, either male or female, who was believed to be able to perform some operation beyond human powers by the agency of evil spirits, such as working evil upon the life and fortunes of other people and casting spells on human beings and cattle. The witch was said to acquire these powers by making a bond or compact sealed with her blood between herself and the devil. By the terms of the bond, it was understood that she renounced the sacraments of Christian religion. After a term of years, or for the rest of her life, devoted her soul to the powers of evil where it was beyond redemption. Witches, says Sir Walter Scott, were generally old, blear-eyed, wrinkled dames, ugly and crippled, frequently Papists, and sometimes atheists, of cross-grained tempers and cynical dispositions. There were often poisoners and generally monomaniacs. Epilepsy and all the diseases not understood by the physicians were set down to the influence of witches. They were said to make two covenants with the devil, one public and one private. Then the novices were presented to the devil in person and instructed to renounce the Christian faith, tread on the cross, break the facts, joining Hands with Satan, paying him homage, and yielding him, body and soul. Some witches sold themselves for the term of years, and some forever. They then kissed the devil and signed, and signed their bond with blood. And a banquet ended the meeting. Their dances were accompanied. With shouts of ha ha, devil, devil, dance here, dance here, play here, play here, Sabbath, Sabbath. Before they departed, the devil was said to give them philtres and amulets concerning which, says a writer of a manuscript of the sixteenth century, these hags are a lineage and a kind of people expressly agreed with the devil, holding and obeying him as their sovereign and master, and suffering themselves to be marked by him, which mark they bear on one of their eyes, fashioned like a toad's foot, by which they know one another, for they have amongst themselves great companies and fraternities, making often general meetings, which they pollute with all. ...abominable villainies and infernal ceremonies, and to homage to the devil, who most commonly appeareth to them in the figure of a great ram goat. Although a good deal of nonsense has been written concerning the witches' meetings, there is some evidence to show that these abnormal women did have secret meetings at night, in the -the out-of-the-way places, where they performed mysterious rites and ceremonies which probably concluded with an orgy. An interesting description of the witches' Sabbath is recorded by Alonso de Castro in a manuscript of the 16th century. He was a learned man of Spain and a Franciscan who had a friend who was a sorcerer with whom he went to a witches' sabbat under the pretense that he wished to make a covenant with the devil. It was a dark night when the sorcerer took him out of the town into the country and they walked together through certain valleys and woods until they reached a plain field enclosed round with mountains Here they found a great number of people, men and women, who went up and down in great mirth and received him as a novice with gladness, assuring him that there was no greater happiness in the world. In the midst of the field a throne was built very sumptuously, on which stood a great and mighty ram goat, to whom at a certain hour of the night they all went to do reverence. The reverence and homage which they do unto him is by turning their shoulders and bowing down their heads as low as they can. He, which is newly assumpted into the brotherhood, doth first with words wicked and abominable, blaspheme and renounce all the holy points and mysteries, vowing unto the devil his faithful service forever with many other execrable ceremonies, vows and oaths, which being accomplished, they mingle themselves together and many devils with them in likeness of young gentlemen and beautiful dames without shame or respect. Castro goes on to say, there are certain oils and ointments with which they then anoint themselves, which deprive them of their right sense, making them imagine They are transformed into birds or beasts, deceiving not only themselves with this error, but oftentimes the eyes of others. For the devil and other enchanters so dazzle and deceive our sight, turning and transforming men into beasts, to the seeming of those which behold them. Though in truth it was nothing so, but the sorcerers think themselves in the imagination to be transposed. Sometimes, They anoint themselves with other ointments whose operation maketh them think they are like fowls and can fly in the air. This account, written by a man of intelligence and a seeker after truth in his time, goes to show that the supposed magic worked by witches was really due to imagination and deception, no doubt aided by certain drugs and properties Of which they understood. Delancre gives the following description of the devil presiding at a Sabbath or meeting of witches. He is seated on the black chair with a crown of black horns, two thorns on the back of his neck, and one in the forehead, which sheds light on the assembly. The hair bristling, the face pale, and exhibiting signs of uneasiness, the eyes round, large, and fully opened, inflamed and hideous with the goat's beard, the neck and rest of the body deformed, and in the area of a goat, the hands and feet of a human being are to be seen. The oath to the demon had to be pronounced in the centre of the circle traced on the ground, accompanied by the offer of some pledge, such as the garment of the novitiate. The edge of the circle was supposed to establish a mark which the demon could not cross. Heavy perfumes such as vervain with burning incense and lighter tapers always form part of the ceremonial. The smoking brazier, which entered largely into the ritual, was believed to act on the demons and was constantly fed with all kinds of those vegetables and animal substances that would produce the most smoke. The presence of toads or familiars, which were sometimes dressed up by the witches in scarlet velvet with little bells, is mentioned in connection with the sabbats in the basque provinces the toad played an important part in witchcraft and when a novice was presented at the sabbat for the first time a toad was given into the care of her introducer until she had completed an officiate and was considered fit to receive it into her keeping it was dressed in a little sack with a cowl through which the head passed and opened under the belly where it was tied with a band that served as a girdle. This dress was generally made of green or black cloth or velvet. The toad was to be treated with the greatest care and to be fed and caressed by its owner. The fumes from the narcotic plants used such as belladonna, stramonium, and hemlock would probably produce a state of semi-stupor and so influence the imagination of the scared spectators that they might easily fancy that they saw the writhing forms of spirits in the air. One method of casting a spell on a person employed by the witches was by means of the wax and clay image. The figure of the intended victim had to be modeled with great secrecy. This having been done, a swallow was killed and the heart placed under the right arm of the image and the liver under the left. The effigy was next pricked all over with new needles, each prick being accompanied by an incantation and terrible imprecations against the victim. Sometimes the figure was molded, in earth taken from a graveyard mixed with powdered human bones certain magical signs were then inscribed upon it which were believed in time to cause the death of the victim in the british museum there is an interesting manuscript entitled a discourse of witchcraft as it was acted in the family of mr edward fairfax of Fewstone. York, 1621. In the manuscript, Mr. Fairfax gives an account of how his two daughters, Helen, aged twenty one, and Elizabeth, aged seven, and a child called Maud jeffrey were bewitched by six witches, who are named. One was Margaret Waite, a widow, whose familiar was a deformed thing with many feet, black of color, rough with hair, and bigness of a cat. Another was Janet Dibble, a very old widow and a reputed witch for many years, whose familiar was a white cat spotted with black. He observes that Satan maketh use of ye mass priests, confirming their supposed holiness by conjuring and by casting forth devils where they never entered. On October 28th, 1621, Helen was found lying on the floor in a deadly trance and remained unconscious for a considerable time. For several days in succession, she had these trances which could not be accounted for. On November the 3rd, at break of day, she called out loudly, Oh, I am poisoned, and told her mother that a white cat had been long upon her and drawn her breath. They endeavoured to persuade her that it was a dream, but on the 14th she again woke the household and said she had found a black dog by her bedside. A sister, Elizabeth, had similar seizures, and it was concluded that they had been bewitched, and suspicion fell on the old women in the village who were believed Work witchcraft. They were arrested and after they had been brought to trial the girls are said to have recovered. The manuscript is illustrated by many curious drawings in black and white of the witches implicated in a variety of weird and curious animals, birds and other strange apparitions said to have been seen by the girls together with some of the familiars. The witch's familiar, which was constantly with her, was supposed to take the shape of a cat dog or a great toad, or some black cat became associated with magic and witchcraft. The weasel was also been associated with witchcraft from early times, and Apuleius in the Golden Ass mentions the practice of wishes of Thessaly of cutting or biting off the ears of a the dead, in order to use them as ingredients in their mysterious compounds. Teleferon relates how he kept watch over a body for about half the night and then received a visit from a witch in the form of a weasel who stared at him with a confidence unusual in so small an animal. A familiar is said to have once been dissected, by the famous physician Dr. William Harvey, the discoverer of the circulation of the blood. The story is related by Notustein thus. About 1685, a justice of the peace in Southwest England wrote a letter in which he said that he once asked Dr. Harvey's opinion of witchcraft. Harvey replied that he believed there was no such thing and recounted a story of a visit he had made to a reputed witch when he was at Newmarket with Charles I. The woman lived in a lonely house on the borders of the heath. Harvey told her that he was a wizard and had come to converse with her on the commons trade. The woman believed him because of what Harvey said. You know, I have a very magical face. Harvey then asked to see the witch's familiar, whereupon the woman brought out a dish of milk, made a chuckling noise, and a toad came out from under the chest and drank some milk. The witch was persuaded to go out and get some ale half a mile away, and while she was absent, Harvey cut up the toad and found the milk inside. He came to the conclusion that it differed no way from other toads, but that the old woman, having tamed it, had come to believe it contained the spirit of a familiar. On her return, the old woman flew like a tigress at Hyalvee, and would not be pacified with money, that he was obliged to tell her that he was the king's physician sent to discover if she was a witch, in case she were, to have her reprehended, and so he took his departure. The beginning of the fifteenth century saw the commencement of an epidemic of witchcraft and persecution throughout Europe, which continued until near the close of the seventeenth century. It was not until witchcraft was placed by the Church under the head of heresies that witches were rigorously prosecuted. The first papal bull against witchcraft was that of Gregory the Ninth in twelve thirty three, and in fourteen eighty four Pope Innocent. The Eighth promulgated his celebrated bull against various practices of sorcery and witchcraft and introduced the terrible courts extraordinary presided over by three sorcery positions which spread consternation into Germany and other parts of Europe. In this bull, sorcery and heresy were confounded together while liberty and life itself were no longer safe to anyone under the tribunal. Pope Alexander the Sixth renewed the bull against witchcraft, but the number of witches suddenly appeared to increase. Spies, informers and exorcists multiplied also, and the rack was in constant use to extort confession, while the fires were kept burning for those whom the torture had driven to confession. In three months during the year 1515, 500 witches were burnt in Geneva alone, a thousand were condemned in the Diocese of Como, a single inquisitor boasted of having condemned 900 in Lorraine, and Trois Echelles confessed that he knew of 1,200 witches in France and claimed to have passed judgment on at least 2,000 of his pretended associates. In the time of King Athelstan, there was a law providing that where witchcraft caused death, it should be punished by death, but where the effect was less serious, the offender was imprisoned or fined. A statute against witchcraft in England was passed in the reign of Henry VI. An additional law was added by Henry VIII, Elizabeth and James I, the last being particularly industrious in his persecution of those accused of witchcraft. In Scotland, in particular, witchcraft appears to have abounded, and persecutions were very frequent. King James the Sixth, before he became James I of England, took an active part in several witch trials, especially in the Inquisitions, to discover the practices of one Cunningham. The most horrible tortures were inflicted on the unfortunate people who were accused some of whom persons of high rank and possession, such as Lady Fowler's and others, whose trials are recorded by Pitcairn. One method of detecting witches, and at the same time torturing them to make confession, was by means of running pins into their bodies on presence of discovering the devil's mark or sign. This practice was actually carried on as a calling in Scotland, and the men who exercised it were known as prickers. Scott states that at the trial of Janet Pearsons of Dalkeith, the magistrates and ministers of the town caused John Kincaid of Trainand, the common pricker, to exercise his craft upon her. He reported found two marks of what he called the devil's making and which appeared indeed to be so, for she could not fill the pin when it was put into either of the said marks, not they the marks bleed when they were taken out again. And when she was asked where she thought the pins were put in, she pointed to a part of a body distant from the real place. They were pins of three inches in length. Besides the fact, that the bodies of the old people especially sometimes have spots void of sensibility, there is also reason to believe that the professed prickers used a pin, the point of a lower part of which was being pressed down, sheathed in the upper part, which was hollow, for the purpose of which, while appearing to enter the body, did not pierce it at all. In 1678, the Privy Council received a complaint from a poor woman who had been abused by the country magistrate, a one so-called Prickster. The members of the council expressed high displeasure at the presumption of the parties complained against and treated the Prickster as a common cheat. An Act of Parliament was passed in England in 1664 against witchcraft and twelve bishops attended the committee when it was discussed in the House of Lords. The Puritans urged that the persecution of all witches should be renewed. The Episcopal party refused to support it or to take an active part in the persecution. Under the long Parliament, however, the campaign broke out with fiercer intensity. Zachary Gray states that he had seen a list of 3,000 witches executed during the period. Sir Matthew Hale presided when some of the unfortunate creatures accused of the offence were brought to trial and charged the juries to convict the persons. Even Sir Thomas Brown, the human author of the Religio Medici, gave evidence of the trial and asserted the reality of the crime. So, General did the charges of witchcraft become that no class of society was safe from accusation and suspicion, thousands perishing by the faggot and torture. After several thousands of victims had suffered the penalty, Sir John Holt, by his judicial firmness, stemmed the tide of fury against the unfortunate accused. Among the last victims condemned in England were the woman and a daughter, the latter only nine years of age. They were accused of selling their souls to the devil and causing a storm by pulling of their stockings and making lather of soap. In the 18th century, even men like John Wesley, and William Blackstone were believers in witchcraft, and it was not until seventeen thirty five that Parliament repealed the statute against witchcraft, and the fear of witches began to die out. The Witchcraft Act of seventeen thirty five, George the which is still in force, provides that no persecution shall be brought for witchcraft, sorcery enchantment or conjuration, but it is enacted that if any person pretend to exercise any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment or conjuration or undertake to tell fortunes or pretend from skills in any occult science to discover where lots of goods may be found, such persons shall be imprisoned for a year and be put into the pillory once every quarter of such year. Concerning demoniacal possession, there is a considerable difference of opinion, and the subject has long been a matter of controversy. There appears to be little doubt that it has its origin in the belief held by primitive peoples that evil spirits or demons could enter the human body and thus cause disease and other ills, until they were driven out by incantations or exorcisms by invoking a higher power. According to biblical accounts, the demons sometimes made their presence, both seen and felt, and in numerous pictures representing saints in the act of exercising in the Middle Ages, the devil or demons is represented with the traditional horns and forked tail. It is evident, however, from the period from which we have any detailed and accurate accounts of these unfortunate people, that their condition was generally due to some form of insanity, epilepsy, or condition of neurosis that was not understood at the time. It was not until the 15th century that doubts appeared to have arisen in the minds of some thinkers as to the nature of demoniacal possession and one of the first to comment on it was Nider, a dominican friar who died at colmar in 1438 john weir who also wrote about it in 1563 on the power of the devil limited it to an influence on the imagination others then began To notice the resemblance of certain diseases believed to have been caused by demons to those known to be from natural causes, and Bouquet declared that such maladies could be cured by physicians. Schneck, who studied the cause of nightmares, which at the time was generally believed to be due to an incubus, attributed the cause of the obstruction of vessels which unite the spleen and the stomach by the thickening of the gastric juices having become black bile. The principal symptoms he observes consists in the sensation of oppression as the weight of the burden prevented the person from breathing and horrible dreams accompanied this sensation. The demoniac schnick says, he considers them as sick people. They have been cured even after the prayers of the church and by the physician. Concludes that the same maladies which seem to be caused by occult forces can be met with the people who are ill from natural causes. With reference to confessions wrung by torture from those accused of sorcery or witchcraft, it was said that the fear of torture alone could produce effects which appeared to confirm their guilt. But even at the end of the 16th century, men like Furnelius and Ambroise Paré, who had described epilepsy and hypochondria as diseases, believed that sorcerers were able to cause demons to enter the human body and cause a madness that resembled mania. It is now known that... It is now known that neurasthenia is due to a derangement of the nervous system, to which is added an emotional intensity. Every faculty becoming sensitive, when pain is felt, the senses sometimes perverted, and spasms, paroxysms, and loss of sensibility may occur, but that these manifestations can be controlled by the willpower of another person. Charcot has shown the effects of hypnotic treatment upon those suffering from acute hysteria and has proved that when a person is hypnotized, the elastic muscular coating of the arteries constricts to such an extent as to stop the flow of blood, and that when needles are stuck into the flesh, no bleeding follows. Thus, the light of modern science has dispelled much of what was thought in the past to be due to occult forces. Thank you.